1: Not your typical interview format, I ask guests to provide a list of the ways they have been viewed, acknowledged, and judged throughout their lives. This scene list reveals and guides our dialogue about identity, visibility, and invisibility while pursuing the question, How are you seen? I'm your host, Miranda Wiley. In this episode, I talk with Justin Simeon, the storyteller behind the movie turned Netflix show Dear White People. Admittedly, Dear White People is a provocative title that could be seen as race-baiting, but as you will hear Justin explain, the show's purpose is not to make white people feel bad, but rather to provide a narrative structure that examines the roles we play in society. With an erroneously-themed blackface party central to the plot, the point-of-view storytelling lends itself to an examination of the intersectionality of race, racism, class, gender, and sexuality. So, with no season one or two spoiler alerts, here is my conversation with storyteller Justin Simeon. Justin Simeon, welcome to The Scene Podcast. Uh, congrats on the renewal of Dear White People for a second season, and thank you so much for taking the time during what I'm sure is a hectic production schedule to talk with me. Would you start uh, by reading your scene list?
0: Yeah, so, uh, so one, uh, being the one Black friend of several white kids in my elementary school, um, I think this really hit me. When I was a kid in the second grade and I realized that who I thought was my best friend um, had had a birthday party over the weekend and did not invite me because I would be, quote, the only one Um, to various work environments where I felt like I was kind of regarded as the black spurt. So the person to bring into a meeting when, you know, an executive was meeting with a black filmmaker or the person who, you know was sort of looked at to sort of teach the rest of the group about an Eddie Murphy movie or something like that. Um, Three, uh, a little bit more recently, uh, is the thought that I am some kind of racist uh, or race baiter. um, People who sort of don't really know anything about me, about my mission, about my work, just kind of based on the title of my show and my film. Uh, You know, sort of making me uh, an enemy and a target and making me out to be all sorts of things that I'm not. Uh, And four, uh, kind of like a, uh, I'd say a a bigger version of the black spurt, or at least the idea that I'm a person who thinks he has all the answers about race or might actually have them, whether that is CNN or a big, you know, news broadcast. Um, You know, it's just kind of off the top of my head. Um, you know, but some sort of reporter or journalist wanting me to sort of weigh in on some racial issue that doesn't really necessarily have to do with anything that I'm doing at the moment or promoting, um, but just feels like, you know, I'm the guy. I'm the go-to guy to talk about race. Uh, when, in fact, I, as an artist, I tend to have more questions than I do the answers. So that's my scene list.
1: Thank you so much for reading that and sharing it. Um, So now we're going to dig into some of the things you brought up. Um, So my first question was about uh, this birthday party scenario. Where did you grow up that you weren't invited to birthday parties? Or was it just the one birthday party? But even if it was just the one, that was your best friend. And that sucks to not be invited.
0: Yeah, I grew up in Houston, Texas. And, um, you know, Houston's a pretty diverse city, but how it usually works is that they're obviously different neighborhoods, um, and I grew up in a all-black neighborhood. But I went to what they call magnet schools, so instead of going to the the, the school in my neighborhood, I would you know get bus to a different school that had a specialty that I had to sort of, you know, test my way into. And I went to this grade school called Longfellow, and um, I had this friend who you know we hung out all the time. I thought he was my pal, and I was really I was really little. This is the second grade, and yeah. I just sort of noticed that. Um, Everyone was talking about this birthday party that happened, (laughs) and uh, I finally built up the nerve to confront him, and yeah, he told me he didn't want to invite me because, you know, for for, for my sake, because I would be the only black kid there. I actually remember that was like really the first time I realized, not just that I was black, but that that meant something to other people that it didn't quite mean to me. Um, It meant that I wasn't allowed certain places. And I have to say, this wasn't the only time in elementary school that I had a white friend who told me to keep our friendship a secret, actually, <laughs> which I thought, you know, at the time, I don't know how I quite interpreted, but looking back on it, it just was so clearly about race and, you know, it just sort of creeped up in ways that I don't know that we, that I would expect.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think that it's kind of incredible that he even acknowledged that to you, but also as you would hope someone would say now as an adult, uh, say, well, you know, you might be the only person here that's going to be different. How would you feel about it? Would that make you uncomfortable? Instead of asking you, he just made an assumption um, and and trying to put it about you. And, and really, it's more about him, right?
0: Yeah. and I mean, listen, he was a second grader. So yeah, I, <laughs> I know emotional intelligence to ask me how i felt i mean these are the kind when you're that young it really is this is stuff that you learn you know what i'm saying like this is that's something that he had heard or that people in his home believed or felt you know he didn't come up with that all on his own um which i don't know makes it a better story or a happier story um but you know looking back on it it's just some interesting the kinds of things that, that going to picked up from their parents and their families. I don't. I don't know where else you would have gotten it from, to be honest.
1: Exactly, it does. I'm raising two kids now myself, and I'm. I can't believe the things that are already starting to happen. But I mean, I had a moment like that in my growing up where um, I asked my parents if they would have any issue if I brought home somebody who was black to date, and they just like all the silverware dropped on the dinner wow. table. I was like, why did you ask that? I was like, I, they're talking about it at school. Like, that's what the girls are saying. Like they couldn't do, they couldn't date someone of a different race. Um, they being all white girls. Uh, so my parents were quite horrified and we moved shortly thereafter. Oh,
0: wow!
1: Wow! <laughs> anyway. So yeah, it was some, it's definitely something that I picked up, uh, in that situation. So anyways, though, um, being left out and being singled out uh, for you seems to be a theme in your list. And has that changed now um, from childhood to now? I mean, it seems like it has in various ways. Is there a certain thing that kind of sticks out that um, that feels like a major change or has it not changed? Is it, does it feel the same?
0: I mean, you know, I think that I'm somewhat of a public person now. I mean, there's at least a, a version of me that is... Uh, purely for public consumption you know whether that's like a version of me that appears in an interview or like in a press release or you know sometimes my twitter account but that person i guess that identity as justin simeon the black filmmaker behind your white people you know sure he gets singled out a lot he gets sort of reprimanded by people who don't know him or know what he's about um and i separate the two because in my personal life uh I don't really feel that I think I've I've been able to kind of create a, an environment of people um you know I've been lucky enough to be able to sort of create a, a a space for myself to walk in where I don't feel that way you know I'm in a I'm in an interracial relationship and so obviously at home you know I'm not getting that and my friends are a very you know carefully um curated group of people so You know, I don't really feel that in my everyday life. I think that, you know, I always will feel that probably from society, just sort of walking into a space where nobody knows who I am. Um, That's always going to occur in some way because, you know, I'm a black person and there, you know, we are in a certain area in terms of our social status and the way people see us. Um, But I would say my public persona. Certainly is singled out. And I think that the way I and my work are perceived in the sort of like cultural landscape, I think, has a lot to do with my race and assumptions that people make about me and my work because of that.
1: Where do people get it right and where do people get it wrong when it comes to making assumptions about, uh, your work based on the title of your work, let alone the work itself, right? I'm just pulling from this, uh, from your scene list, that people think that they know who you are based on the title of your work, Um, which I'm assuming you literally mean the title of your work and just the commentary you're getting from that, which I know you've gotten a lot of criticism and hate um, just based on that beyond even people watching the movie or the TV show.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I don't know that anyone really gets it right when they assume. You know, I kind of, you know, I made Dear White People sort of with perhaps naive assumption that people would, you know, give it the benefit of the doubt without necessarily taking the title so literally. I don't think that's a thing that you get to have as a first time filmmaker because nobody really knows who you are yet. Um, And so I think whether or not it's a positive or negative assumption, you know, some people come into it feeling like, oh, this guy just wants to make white people feel bad or you know, he's just trying to stir up trouble or whatever. And then the more positive version of it, which is, oh, he's he's about to tell him, he's about to let him know, he's about to let him have it, or you know, wow, like you know, this is gonna have this is gonna have all the answers. But really, none of those things are true. It's it's just a it's a piece of fiction that has a provocative title. But at the end of the day, like I, you know, like any storyteller who's worth anything, and concerned about the characters and their journeys and telling a truth that you know, people can perhaps hear from a different perspective and see it in a new way. You know, those are the kinds of things that really interest me as a filmmaker. I'm not sort of interested in quote-unquote race baiting or or even lecturing people. I, I don't think that that's my lane, you know. Um, if I wanted to lecture about race, I would do that. I, I would go and I would speak and I would, you know, lecture. Um, but I, I, I want to tell a story about characters who happen to live in a society where race really matters and and really affects their lives. And, you know, I think that if, you know, I were an established filmmaker and people already sort of knew who I was and, you know, even if I was a white filmmaker and I came out with something called Dear White People, I don't know that people would bring so much to the table. Um, I think the fact that I am, you know, some people know the movie and some people You know, when the show came out, we were absolutely ready for what I was bringing. But a lot of people don't know me, don't know me from Adam, don't know my work from anything else. And they just sort of see a title and see a black face behind it and sort of make all sorts of assumptions, positive or negative, but neither of which are are true.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it must be really strange to have people have access uh, to you in a way that is real but not real. Or just make assumptions. Um, how are you handling that as you move forward now in the second season? Do you feel like you have, you know, it sounds like you have a community together of people. Uh, you have support. Um, do you read less of those comments now? Uh, do you do you separate yourself more from the
0: commentary? Actually, actually I read more of them now. Um, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, because I, I, I don't really take it as personally. Uh, yeah, I think I did. You know, when I was first going through it. I mean you know, as a filmmaker who is probably always going to tell stories that are quote unquote difficult or challenging or provocative, it's important for me to know this stuff. Like it's important for me to be aware of how things hit the public and hit their ear. And, you know, for me, that's like a, that's a thing that I have to figure out and, and have to, you know, have a thick enough skin to sort of deal with because, you know, when the second season comes, you know, I want to think about positioning. I want to think about how do we reach people that haven't seen the show yet. You know, we were a big hit, but listen, it can be bigger, <laughs> and I want always, it to be always,
1: always.
0: And I want more people to be a part of this dialogue because I think it's important. And um, so, yeah, I actually, I actually, I actually, I think I'm handling it okay. I mean, here's the thing: when you grow, I grew up black and gay in the South, so learning to separate how people see me. From how I see myself, was just a a survival skill. I mean, a lot of I had to figure that out on some level. Maybe it wasn't perfect for a while, but I had to figure that out just to survive mentally, Um, because I was quote unquote a double minority, you know, and uh, that's not the easiest thing. Because there's really no, especially you know, for for minorities in general, there's nothing. There's not a lot in the culture to represent their experiences. But when you're two things, oh lord, it's really hard to find. So without anyone to sort of model after, you know, I kind of had to say, okay, this is this is the version of me that people see, and I can embrace that or not. But that is separate from who I am. I think that's probably why a lot of my work speaks to identity versus self. You know, the roles that we play in society versus who we really are. I mean, that is the core um, thematic statement behind Dear White People. And it tends to crop up in all sorts of, of, of um, you know, work that I, I engage in, to be honest with you. I think, I think that's probably a story that I'll tell over and over again in different ways throughout my career.
1: Yeah, it's a very important story to speak about the intersectionality of identity. And I love that from your scene list, you talk about that you are an artist with questions, not answers. Yeah. Um, And like, what is the dominant question you are looking to ask in your work? And do you ever want to answer that? Or do you want to just leave it for questions for others to answer?
0: I mean, I I don't know. I don't know if I ever arrive at some huge answer. I mean, I think I'd probably want to offer that. I think with race, um, I think with race, I'm pretty clear about how we got here in terms of racial issues in America. I think I'm. I think, I think Black people have to be clearer than most, you know, the average person in America has to be, just because, again, it's, a, it's part of how I survive mentally um, in this country. Um, so I'm clear how we got here, but I have no idea how we get out of it. Like, I have no idea how we get past um, this moment in time where people are so triggered and siloed in their corners that no one is willing to listen to each other or consider things. Come, that don't feel familiar to them, and that's human nature. But it's also uh, keeping us from being the best version of ourselves as a species, as a country, as you know, people, as individuals. And so, how do we get out of it? How do we achieve, you know, an end to racism? I have no idea. You know, um, that's a question that I think is asked a lot in my work, especially dear white people. Is considering that this is human nature. How do we get past this particular conflict um, and you know I don't I don't th- I think anybody who sort of purports to have an answer to that is lying or is arrogant um, I think this is, a, this is, a, this is a, a conversation that needs to be had in our country among all sorts of people who contribute to it and that is not something a single filmmaker or storyteller can really provide an answer to but what I can provide is insight I can provide a point of view I can say, here's how it looks from my angle, guys. What do you think of that? And how does that make you feel? And does it make you think of things in a way that you hadn't thought of before? And if so, how do, you know, what are you thinking now? And if not, why? Um, you know, that's that's the best I think I can do as an artist um, because I'm, I have only one point of view. But something as big as racism, I mean, that requires so many points of views and so many people who are currently. It's just not in vogue for them to talk to each other. So, you know, I think in a lot of ways my show is also a clutter buster. It's like, let's just get all the taboo triggering stuff out of the way so that we can kind of get to the meat of it, you know?
1: I I love that you said a a clutter buster. Is that what you just called it?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I like that because it's like that you can't even really just say that the show is... I mean, it's really about all the layers and the intricacies of um, race and everyone's uh, in the show, all the characters, they all have a different relationship to their identity as it's seen with race. Um, And that's what I love, that you've been able to get deeper into these conversations with the series as opposed to with the movie. So I look forward to the second season a lot.
0: Me too.
1: So, Looking at the scene list um, being the black spurt on uh, all things in the black culture, especially you you frame this in the work environments. Um, Would you give me some examples of some of the things someone has expected you to be an expert on? And how do you respond in these situations?
0: Well, I remember remember the first time was, um, there's an executive that shall not be named. It was a really nice person. And I think thought was doing me a favor or something. But had a, a meeting with a black filmmaker, and you know there's nobody black in the department in, at the time and so he pulled me from a different department I was not working in in this person's department, and pulled me into the meeting so that I could sort of speak to the company's um, you know interests in in these kinds of stories and I was an in, I was an assistant <laughs> I was sort of like uh, six months out of my internship and um at the time, I took it as an opportunity and I tried to impress this person and, you know, took it as a as an opportunity for myself. But looking back on it, I mean, it was it was a bit of exploitation. And I I'm not the only one. I mean, there's lots of people who are the only black person or the only woman or the only whatever in their office. And they're pulled into this meeting to make it seem as if the office is more diverse than it is, um, you know, but it is it is it's, it's a it's a conflicted feeling because. In the workplace, you know, you always want to do whatever it takes to sort of get ahead and move to that next level and to kind of graduate from whatever position that you're in. So you don't want to pass up any opportunities. But as a human being, when I go home with that, you know, I know what happened. I'm aware that I was only brought in because of what it would look like if I was in that meeting Um, and, and because that particular person that we were meeting with would sort of respect my opinion. But the truth is, I really didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I was just a black face, and that's all I was. And I was never brought into other meetings, or my opinion was never asked for in any other situations. And so, in the long run, it made me feel less valuable, really. Um, it made me feel like I was a bit of a circus trick or something, you know. So, um, that's one of them, you know. I, I think, in, in, in ways big and small, uh i've often been a black sport whether that is there's this new phrase going around um i think there's a joke in easter ray's insecure where you know her white co-workers ask her what's on fleek on fleek mean and she says i don't don't know what that means and then her voiceover says i know what that shit means (laughs) i've been there so many times when i've been asked to explain you know some slang or some rap lyric or teach someone how to do whatever dance is hot at the moment And it's like, it's exhausting (laughs) being expected to sort of sum up the experience of an entire race of people, um, succinctly for, you know, an an engaged audience of white people who don't know better. Uh, It's exhausting.
1: And are you even a good dancer? Do you actually have dance
0: moves? I'm a fantastic dancer, (laughs) (laughs) I'm great. but I don't, you know, the funny thing is, I never really, uh, I never really like learn. Like, I don't really like, like, I never learned, you know, like the single ladies dance or whatever. Like, whatever the dance is of the moment, I don't really like practice that stuff. There are a lot of people who do. I'm not that guy, but I have to say, you know, if my song comes on, it's, it's gonna be a thing. So,
1: what's your current song?
0: Oh boy. Um, I have a lot of current songs. Uh, I think right now i'm really into this new jay-z album like everybody else um i really like calvin harris uh carolyn harris's new album he has a bunch of like rappers and black folks on it and i he's doing this new disco thing that i really like um just because yes it, that's
1: it, on my workout yeah playlist. I love, yeah
0: i love new disco uh and um just because it was on the season premiere of insecure let It Burn by Jasmine Sullivan has kind of been on my playlist all morning. So, but <laughs> here yes. in the club, it's, it's about to be a situation.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I love knowing that uh, even though it's ignorant that they're asking you about dance moves, that you do actually have some dance moves.
0: And I do. it's it's one of the this black stereotypes that I absolutely uphold. I cannot play basketball. Um, I don't, you know really have an appropriate hairline for a black person in this day and age i uh i don't tend to remember rap lyrics but i can dance that i can do
1: nice nice well um we are about out of time but before we go i want to ask you um how would you like to be seen a year from now
0: i would like to be seen as a storyteller period not a black storyteller not an expert on race not the director of dear white people a storyteller, a storyteller with important stories um, that are worth your attention. That's how I would like to be seen, because that's who I think I am.
1: I love it. Well, I definitely see you as a storyteller, and uh, I will, you know, do what I can by having you on the show and talking <laughs> about you as a storyteller you. to help uh, you know, <laughs> get that ball rolling.
0: I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you for a lovely conversation.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Justin. Thanks so much for being seen with Miranda. I really appreciate you taking the time out.
0: Thank you, Miranda. Have a good one.
1: Justin Simeon obviously doesn't need me to get the ball rolling on being seen as a storyteller. He is one. He knows it. I know it. His ask to be seen as a storyteller is an ask for his work not to be attached to his race, as in being viewed as a race baiter or an expert on race. My favorite part of our conversation was learning that Justin prefers to be seen as an artist with questions, not answers. The whole premise of this podcast is to create a format to ask questions about ourselves and others and maybe find some answers and maybe even those answers, more questions open up. It's a space where I honestly even question my role as the interviewer. Like the part where I talk with Justin about my middle school peers reporting that they can't date out of their race. Yeah, I was inclined to cut that because honestly, I'm concerned about how I will be seen. Immediately after telling my story, I felt regret, like, why did I just say that? Am I trying to prove that I'm one of the good white folks with parents troubled by the racism of my friends? I cringe listening to the awkward embarrassment in my voice as I segue out of my story and to my next question. So why didn't I edit the clip out? And furthermore, why am I even talking about it now? Because questioning how we are seen versus how we want to be seen is the point of this project. And I think it's important to point out that identity conversations can be challenging and awkward sometimes. Ultimately, I don't know what Justin thought. He could think I was another white person sorting through white guilt and trying for her cookie. Or he could have seen it as an attempt to connect about how prejudices are learned. Either way, Justin rolled with it as he is a pro at having to navigate race conversations. See it for yourself if you haven't already. Find Dear White People the movie and season one of the TV show on Netflix with season two releasing soon. Want to know more of what Justin is dancing to? Check out his Spotify playlist. I've enjoyed them while working on this episode. The scene team includes me, Miranda Wiley, and producer Mariah Gossett. Editing by Sarah K. Mohamed and Andrew Mohammed. Music by Solid State Dream Suit. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Scene with Miranda. And start your own scene list with the hashtag HowAreYouScene. Thanks for listening. Crowd controller, as you sing.